So we've been walking through Jude. We've been this, this just a really short sermon series called. Because at the beginning, Jude says we're called. And in the Jewish mind, called means not just that, that he's called you or invited you, but that he has called you, he has invited you, and he has commissioned you to something. So you have been called and commissioned. So then he goes through and he, and he uh, gives us this framework to work with where he lets us know that there, are, there is an adversary. You are called, you are commissioned, and there is an adversary that has snuck into the church. And they have exchanged the grace of God. They have perverted the grace of God. And they have said that God's grace means you can do whatever you want. You don't have to worry about judgment coming. You don't have to worry. God's grace means you can just do whatever. So they've perverted God's grace. Now, when we look at Galatians, we see very clearly Paul lets us know that our righteousness is not based on our own works. We don't have to be legalistic. We don't have to earn righteousness. God's righteousness covers us. His grace means we will not be judged based on our works. But that doesn't mean that we should just go off and do whatever. Let our sinful desires control us. In fact, it frees us to focus in on God. To stop thinking about the sinful desires and focus in on God. See, that's legalism's trick is that it always makes you focus in on the wrong thing. If I say, don't think about pink elephants, what are you thinking about right now? I'll just ask, who's thinking about pink elephants right now? Everybody's got a pink elephant in their mind, right? Stop thinking about pink elephants! Now what are you doing? You're really... Just quit thinking pink elephants! That's what legalism does. It says, don't focus on your sin. Just keep focusing on how to do the right thing. Don't focus on your sin. Don't focus on your sin. Don't focus on your sin. And what are you thinking about? You're thinking about all the sin. Don't lust after that woman. Don't lust after that woman. Don't lust after that woman. What are you doing? All you're thinking about is lust. God's grace says you can quit that train of thought. Instead, focus in on God. Just focus in on God. And He will grow you in His grace. Focus in on God. And He will grow you in on His grace. So, we get this: these people who are sneaking into the church and they are perverting God's grace. They are exchanging God's grace. And they want to divide the church. And so next he gives us this description of these people who are, who are coming in and they are telling you whatever you want to hear so that they can gain power, so that they can gain control. If you want to believe something, you can find a pastor that will tell you it's okay to believe whatever it is that you want to believe. You can go out there and find it. You can Google it. And there is somebody out there letting you know that that's okay. And so people are making a living off of this. Perverting God's grace, exchanging God's word, twisting, they're doing some jujitsu on scripture so that they can divide the church they can manipulate you, and they can gain their own influence and power. 
And that's the description of these people who have snuck in. They talk like a Christian. They walk like a Christian. They want you to believe that they're a Christian, but some of them don't even believe that Jesus existed. I have talked with pastors who claim to be a Christian, but don't even believe in a historical Jesus. Now, I always thought that to be a Christian, you at least had to believe that Jesus existed. But there are some out there that want to twist Scripture, and they're doing it all for their own power, for their own glory, for their own influence. So how do you interact with these people? When you come across someone who is twisting Scripture, or someone who is being influenced by someone who is twisting Scripture, how do you interact? What do you say to them? That's what Jude's going to get into us, into for us today. We've been called, we've been commissioned, now we get our marching orders. We get our instructions. We've, we've been able to identify who the adversary is. We get our instructions today. So turn with me, if you will, to Jude. Jude is the second to last book of the Bible. If you hit Revelation, just go back just a, just a hair. If you go back too far... You'll skip it, because it's, it's a really short book. In fact, it's so short, it only has one chapter. In fact, it's not divided up by chapters. You know, you, you won't go to Jude 1.1, 1, 1, you'll just go to Jude 1. So don't be confused that we're studying Jude 17 through 25 today. That's not chapters, that's just verses, all right? So, we're going to start off in Jude 17. But, to, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh." Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. All right, so let's go ahead and jump on in. So he starts off with, but you must remember. So he's given us this this, uh, uh, characteristics of the false teachers, those people who have snuck in. He's gone on, he's described them for us, so now he contrasts them with us. So you must remember. Now this remember is actually, it forms what's called an inclusio with verse 5. If you remember verse 5, he gives us a reminder. There is a reminder in verse 5, there's going to be a reminder in verse 17. That forms an inclusio, meaning we're no longer talking about the false teachers that are sneaking in. So you must remember. And what must we remember? This remember is also a call to action. It's not just think on these things, but act them out, live them out. He's going to remind us of certain principles in the Christian life that we need to live out. Don't just recite them. It's really easy to memorize doctrine. It's really easy to sit there and explain all of the attributes of God. Well, we think it's easy. 
It's much more difficult to live it out. It's easy to talk about grace. It's another thing to live in God's grace and to extend God's grace. So he's saying, remember, not just as call this into your mind, but call this into your mind in such a way that you live it. Remind yourself on such a continual basis. I know every parent, just about every parent, I should say, has their kids memorize Proverbs 15.1. What is Proverbs 15.1? Anybody, anybody got that down? What was that? 15.1? Proverbs 15.1? No? Oh, man. <laughs> a gentle answer. What does a gentle answer do? Turns away wrath. And what does a harsh word do? Stirs up anger. Come on, parents, you are making your kids memorize this, right? (laughs) My kids, I mean, we work on it all the time. And I was actually working on this with one of my kids the other day, and he was like, Dad, I already memorized it. And I was like, oh, yeah, what is it? Well, I can't remember. (laughs) Wait a second here. He goes, well, you made me memorize it when I was five. (laughs) Yeah, let's keep memorizing it. It's one thing to know, like, hey, I know that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. It's another thing for me to live that out, isn't it? It's another thing when somebody is coming at me with some angry words for me not to explode right back at them and totally disregard the principles of that that proverb, right? So I want my kids to memorize that, but not just know it as a fact up here. I want them to live it out, for them to be able to use it all the time. When their brother comes at them accusing them of something, I want them to be able to say, wait, I have two options here. I can either accuse them right back and yell at them right back, which is only going to make things worse, or I can speak gently to them. And it's one of those principles that even as adults, we just have to remind ourselves of over and over again. So this isn't just a call these basic facts up. It's a live these principles out. So he's going to remind us the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's going to remind us of these predictions. These predictions show us that this, is, this isn't anything that we didn't know was going to happen. Jesus, when he was living on this earth, warned us of this. And then after Jesus warned and he taught his apostles, his apostles went out and he taught them personally. So remember the predictions of the apostles. Another little little side note on this is Jude is emphasizing that he is not an apostle. Jude's not an apostle, but he's emphasizing the authority of the apostles. An apostle is simply a messenger sent with the authority of the sender. In order to be an apostle, you had to walk with Jesus. You had to be taught by Jesus, and you had to be commissioned by Jesus. This is why we believe that there is no office of apostle today, because everyone who was commissioned with the authority of Jesus has died off. So there was an an office of apostle. We don't believe that there is an office of apostle anymore, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't go out with the message of Jesus. It just just means that we haven't been commissioned personally with the authority of Jesus, all right? And Jude is recognizing that. Jude is a messenger, but he's not operating with the authority of the apostles. I don't have the authority of the apostles, right? I'm not writing new scripture. We talked about that a little bit last week, how the false teachers think they have a new revelation. Anybody that's coming at you with a new revelation, that should be some red flags coming up. You should be like, whoa, Scripture's been fulfilled. There are no more apostles. There is no more new revelation. All right, so 
He's emphasizing the authority of the apostle. And then what does he tell us? They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. All right, so in the last time, some people ask, are we living in the last days? And the question is, or I mean the answer is, yes. We've been living in the last days for the last 2,000 years. The last days, from the apostle standpoint, from the early church standpoint, the last days was simply a description of the time period between the ascension of Christ and his return. That's what the last days mean. It just simply means this time frame here, right? So, are we living in the last days? Yes. We've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years, all right? So, when will the last days end? Well, when Jesus comes back. All right, so yes, we are living in the last days. There will be scoffers. This term scoffer means mocker, someone who will belittle, someone who is trying to produce shame for your belief. It was, there were mockers around when Jude wrote. There are mockers today. There are people who want you to feel shame for believing. It doesn't take very many Google searches for you to find someone who is that way. But this is nothing new to have a belief in Yahweh. Uh, Jezebel, you remember that Old Testament character who hated those who followed Yahweh. It wasn't necessarily the fact that they didn't follow the same God that she followed. It was the fact that they only followed Yahweh. She thought they were narrow-minded and bigoted because they only followed Yahweh and not a plethora of other gods. So she was a mocker. She was a scoffer. She wanted them to feel shame and narrow-minded. It's the same thing today. There are people that want you to feel shame and, and want you to feel like you are narrow-minded for following Jesus. How on earth could you believe such a fantasy, is what they will say. And they'll say, I don't believe in some magic man in the sky. Don't be surprised about it. It's going to happen. There are a lot of apologetics and a lot of good reasons to believe in Jesus, to believe in a historical Jesus, a historical Jesus that rose again. One of the best evidences is the church. Meaning, there's no way, if Jesus had not risen from the dead, there's no way the church would have continued. In fact, it would have died out. How many other Jewish, supposedly messiahs, rose up? There were uh, numerous other ones that had movements. that were, They were moving against Rome. They claimed to be the Messiah. They would amass greater followings than what Jesus had. And, and when they would die, the movement would stop. Because there was no truth to their movement. The very fact that the movement of Jesus continued on, and not just continued on, but continued to grow. It wasn't just these 12 apostles and a handful of disciples, but the movement continued to grow, and it continued to grow in the very place that Jesus died and rose again. 
That's a huge amount of evidence for the resurrection. So we can see that there are people that want to belittle you. There is evidence. And we can stand on it. So, there are scoffers who are coming, but, there are all, but they will also follow their own ungodly passions. So this is actually, this is what is motivating the scoffer, right? A lot of scoffers, a lot of mockers will want to convince you that's what, what's motivating them is truth. What's motivating them is reality. And they will say that the reality is there is no God. Or the reality is your God isn't the right God. And they, they, they want to convince you that that is their motivation, but their real motivation is their own ungodly desire. Ungodly simply means going against God. That's what ungodly means. And so their desires that go against God. When God created the world, he created the world with certain principles. These principles, if we live them correctly, these principles help us to thrive, help us to flourish. When we violate those principles as an individual, as a culture, we stop flourishing. But there are people that want to convince us that there is no God because they want to convince us to stop living based on these principles. I think of Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley, he wrote Point Counterpoint. He wrote A Brave New World. He was this tremendous author and he, he came out one day and he just confessed, hey, I don't want to believe in a God. Because if I, have, if I believe in a God, then I have to believe that at some point I'm going to get judged. At some point, there is some kind of moral principle or philosophy that I have to f- submit my life to. But if I can convince myself that there is no God, then I become a God to myself. Then I control morality. And I, I want to control morality. So let's not believe in God so I can go after my own selfish desires. So these scoffers are motivated by their own ungodly passions. And then Judah's going to give us a little bit more of a description of them. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Devoid of the Spirit simply means that they're not believers. They, they, they haven't put their faith and trust in Christ, therefore the Holy Spirit hasn't come to indwell them. So they are devoid of the Spirit Worldly people, this description worldly people means that they are looking for their significance in the world. When our creator created us, he created us with meaning, with significance, with purpose. And if you reject the creator, then you will look for your meaning and purpose and significance in something else. That's what this is describing. So that something else might be power, it might be influence, it might be your own God, ungodly passions. It might be the next car that you drive. It might be popularity. It might be comfort. The point is, every single human is looking for some type of purpose in this life. Because God created us that way. But if you throw off the purpose and the meaning that God has given you, then you will look for purpose and meaning in something else. And when you finally obtain that something else, it will let you down. And you will turn towards something else 
once again. We see this all the time with celebrities and people of influence. People who we think have obtained it all. Only to struggle with depression. Because they've been reaching for significance. They've been reaching for meaning. They've been reaching for purpose. And when they finally grabbed what they thought would give them meaning and influence and purpose and significance, they are let down. The only true meaning and purpose and significance in this life is that which your Creator has given you. So they're worldly people who cause division. And what they mean by cause division is they're constantly stirring the pot. They're constantly coming in and trying to divide people up. They're constantly trying to divide the groups. They're constantly trying to divide, and they do this because they know that they can gain power. Where there is division, where, is there, where there is chaos, they can snatch power and influence. Back in communist Russia, they wouldn't allow beekeeping associations. Now you would think, what? That's weird. Why wouldn't communist Russia allow beekeeping associations? I mean, beekeeping associations, they gather together to share information about beekeeping. And who doesn't want more bees and more honey, right? I love honey. Delicious, delicious honey. I love it. Who wouldn't want more of it? Why on earth would they, would they disallow beekeeping associations? It's because... The communists found that there was power in unity. There was power when a group could come together, even when it was something as simple as teaching one another how to be better beekeepers. They knew there was power in unity, and so what did the Communist Party do? They separated them out so that they could maintain power. The same is for the, it's true for those who are sneaking in. They know there's power in unity. And so they, don't want to, they want to divide us so that they can conquer us. So these people cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. And then he gives us buts. This contrasting conjunction buts. We've got the description. We know who they are. But you, you are not those people. You are not called and commissioned to cause division. You are not called and commissioned to find your significance in the world. You are not called and commissioned to be devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So here we've got four pieces of instruction to help us combat the false teacher, something that will help protect us. And then he's going to go on and describe how we need to interact with each one of these or, or with, with the false teacher and those who are being swayed by the false teacher. So you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Here, it's in our individualistic culture, it's easy for us to read building yourselves up and think, okay, how am I personally going to build myself up? But in this context, Jude is actually referencing the church, building the church up. This is, a, we need to build the church up, not individually. We know that as we build the church, healthy churches help produce healthy Christians. Healthy Christians help produce healthy churches, right? 
So we need to be building the church up. And what do we build the church up on? Well, it has to start with a foundation, and that foundation has to be Jesus Christ. If the foundation is not Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how much unity is in the church, it will collapse. You need a healthy foundation, which is Jesus Christ, before you can build upon it. And then the next part of the building is the frame. I remember when I first bought my house here in Doney Park, there's a 1,600 square foot workshop in the back. And we were going to convert that workshop into a guest house. We had Lester come on over and help us with that because I am clueless when it comes to any type of framing. And uh, Lester came over and he starts looking around and he's like, huh, that's weird. What's, what, what's going on here? That's, and he's getting kind of confused and he's looking at some of the frame and he realizes that the framing was kind of off and that was causing the workshop to lean one way. And, and what's really crazy about this is the previous owner recognized that it was leaning. And he was going to build a door frame. And what he did to build this door frame is he just cut the, the new frame with a slant to match the leaning frame. And Lester's like, this is crazy. <laughs> what, what is that going to eventually produce? It's going to produce a, a workshop that's falling over. And so we had to work hard on getting that frame back into place and, and putting up some, uh, uh, some beams that would help stabilize that frame. In Christianity, our framing would be doctrine. So our base, our, our foundation has to be that of Jesus Christ, and then our framing becomes doctrine. We have to have good doctrine. Or the place tumbles over. So we have a foundation that is Jesus Christ, and then we have to have a frame that is doctrine, solid doctrine. And we build ourselves up within that doctrine. I think it's also important to notice that there are primary doctrinal issues that we need to have unity on. If you do not agree on these primary doctrinal issues, then we might even question whether or not you're a Christian. One of those primary doctrinal issues is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The atoning death, I should say, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in that, then you don't have a foundation. We don't share the same foundation. But then after that, we need to talk through some other secondary doctrinal issues. And we need to have unity on those secondary doctrinal issues. And then there's tertiary doctrinal issues, which are third-tier doctrinal issues that are still important, but they're not what we unify around. They don't create unity within the church. And oftentimes, these false teachers that want to sneak in, one of the ways they create division is they take a third-tier doctrine, which is still important, we still need to develop it, but they try to make that a first-tier doctrine. And what that does is it creates division. And when they create division, then they can come in and have influence. So we need to be sure we know our stuff when it comes to third tier. But we also need to make sure that we don't promote third tier doctrine to first tier doctrine. All right. So going on. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. So we need to have solid doctrine. Now, this is also important because it's God has done his part, right? Right? He is guarding us. We're going to read a little bit more in the doxology. 
his part, but he's also commanding us to do our part. He has given us scripture that we can trust, that is dependable. Our part now is to study that scripture and apply that scripture. So he has done his part. He's also given us an assignment to do as well. So, building yourselves up and praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a more of a relational aspect to it. The second you put your faith and trust in Christ, the this Holy Spirit comes and indwells you. It convicts you. So when we pray, when we say praying in the Holy Spirit, that means praying in such a way that you are building that relationship. You are opening the doors to the Holy Spirit convicting you. It's really easy for us to develop a grocery list of prayers. Right? We start developing like, this person needs that, this person needs that, Lord, I'd really like my son to do this. And we start developing all these things we want God to do. Instead of taking time out and just praising God for who he is. Taking time out and listening to the Holy Spirit convict us. Spend time in prayer asking God to reveal your own heart to you. So praying in the Holy Spirit, that's our second uh, instruction. Keep yourselves in the love of God. So we're to keep ourselves in the love of God. This word keep means to guard. So we're to, this is another thing that is for us to do, and that is to guard our relationship with God, to guard it, to protect it. It is really easy for us to let that relationship slide. Now, his love is still there. His love is still abounding towards us, and yet we can start to drift away. He's not drifting away. That's important for us to recognize. But we can drift away. It's really easy to make an excuse. I'm really tired, and I don't feel like reading my Bible this morning. You know, I'm just going to take some time to wake up, because even if I read my Bible, you know, my, my brain might not be processing that well. I'm explaining to you things I do, excuses I make in the morning. Have you ever done that? Woken up early to read your Bible, and then you're like, but I just, my brain's not even going to process it right right now, so I should just kind of zone out on my phone maybe until my brain wakes up. And little by little, you start to let things slide. One of the reasons why we gather together on Sunday morning is to encourage each other in the faith, to praise God, to worship Him, to recognize Him as the Creator. And it's really easy to take a Sunday off, and man, it feels good to take a Sunday off, doesn't it? feels good to just take a nice, relaxing morning. And pretty soon we're taking the next more Sunday. And we've fallen out of the habit of meeting together with the saints all together. And we're not guarding that relationship with God. Now, His love is still abounding towards you. But you have started to slip back. So we need to guard that relationship Continue to guard that relationship. Pursue God. And then uh, he goes on waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And this is the hope. This is right, right? This is the hope that we are promised. That one day Jesus is going to return. That he is going to make all wrong things right. So we need to continually remind ourselves of that. And of his mercy towards us. If we don't remind ourselves of his mercy towards us, we'll think it's us. We'll think we've done it. If I forget how horrible I can be 
but through his mercy, he is growing me in his grace, I'll think I'm good. I'll think I'm the gift. Instead of his way of changing my heart being the gift. So we need to remind ourselves, waiting for that mercy that leads to eternal life. And then he gives us the instructions on how to interact. And there's three different groups that we interact with. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we're to have mercy on those who doubt. Those who doubt are, are those who are questioning the faith, right? So they've been Christians, that they may, may have grown up in the church, but now they're, they're wondering, like, is this thing real? Is this even real? The church should be a safe place to question doctrine. It should be a safe place because we have the truth, right? And so if someone comes at us attacking the truth, we should say, okay, well, let's talk through that. Let's discuss that a little bit more. And then he describes the next level, save others by snatching them out of the fire. So there's those who doubt, and then there are those who are ready to act. So they've been questioning. Maybe they didn't get their questions answered right. Maybe they're, they're, they're following their desire towards sin, so they're getting ready to act on the sin, and this is like an intervention type of thing. We see them walking towards the cliff. We know that it's a 400-foot drop. We better act and have an intervention. And then there's this final group, to others show mercy with fear. And this is a group that has they've gone through the intervention, but they still want to follow their sin. They still want to follow that passion. And notice here what we're supposed to do. Show mercy with fear. This idea of fear is to, uh, to walk or proceed with caution. So when I think about these three levels, I, I kind of think of it as like if I had a friend who was struggling with his marriage, I should be a safe place for him to discuss his marriage. And so he comes to me and he starts discussing his marriage with me and I'm going to listen. I'm going to say, I understand. And, and I might tell him, you know, I, I understand that she's not fulfilling you the, the way you'd like to be fulfilled, but God didn't call us to marriage to be happy. God called us to marriage to reflect his glory. And he didn't call us to marriage so that she could fulfill me. He called me to marriage so that I could learn how to die to myself all the more. And so it might just take some reorienting of like, you've got the purpose of marriage wrong. And, and I want to be a safe place so he, can, so he can talk and we can talk through this idea of what does it mean to die to yourself. But that's the first group. The next one, he might think, well, you know, I, I've been struggling in my marriage and there's this girl that's really building my ego. And as he's starting to go towards her, I need to have an intervention. I need to confront him and say, look, man, you got to run from this. Because it looks attractive now, but you don't see the pain afterwards. It looks attractive now, but in five years, when she's going through the same struggles that your wife is going through, are you going to continue the, the cycle? And what about your children? Have you ever thought about sharing your children with another man because she's been remarried? And it's time for an intervention and to give him some really solid truth of like, you don't, you, he, she might be stroking your ego, but there's a whole lot more to this than your ego. And it's time for an intervention. 
but he goes and he ignores me anyways. And in the moment, he's living it up. And he comes to me and he says, and this is the next category of show mercy with others. Because he comes to me and he says, Aaron, I went through with the affair, and it's great. He doesn't see the pain that's about to hit him. He only thinks of the moment where his ego is being stroked, and now he wants to convince me to do the same thing. Well, what's my instruction here? To show mercy. Now, there's some righteous anger that should be carried along with that, right? God is, God's pretty mad about that. He's forsaken his wife and his children. And yet, we can have compassion because we know the end game. So there's mercy. There's this compassion that needs to be shown to this person. But with fear. Meaning you proceed with caution. The moment my friend goes off to have the affair, I start to set up boundaries between me and my friend. Because I recognize that his sin can become a temptation to me. And so I begin to set up boundaries so that I don't follow the same path. I recognize that I am seducible. Therefore, I'm putting up boundaries to anything that would seduce me. One of my mentor pastors used to say, if you don't think you're seducible, then you're seducible. And I love that line. And I've I've held tightly to it. Because the first step to being seduced is to think that you can't be seduced. I think of uh, this friend, this dear friend I had a long time ago. It was about 10 years ago. She was this, she worked in youth ministry alongside me. She was this, this person that loved God. She loved her husband. She loved her kids. And her husband had lost his job, so she decided to join back into the workforce to help with finances during that time. And there was this guy at her new job that was kind of known as this ladies' man. She had mercy on him. She had compassion for him because she thought he was lonely. And so she started sharing Christ with him. And the second he found out she was a Christian, he looked at her and he told her, I'm going to sleep with you. That was his challenge. That was his challenge to her. Well, she didn't think she was seducible. She didn't have mercy with fear. She thought she could win him over. And in the end, after the affair, there was destruction and devastation for her family and for her. When we see people being, jumping off the cliff to follow the false teacher, we need to recognize that we could go that way too. Our own ungodly desire can grab a hold of us, twist our heart, and it is so easy to justify any ungodly sin. So we need to proceed with caution. When we see that happening, it's time to build up some boundaries. Not that we hate them. Not that we want the, to see them in pain. 
We have mercy on them still. We have compassion for them. But we also know the destruction that comes with sin, and we need to have boundaries. So he goes on, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The garment is symbolic for character. And, and that was one of those thoughts back in, in antiquity was, you, you know, you, you put on this character, this person that you would be. And so he's saying that this character has been stained by these ungodly passions. And we need to hate that character. We have mercy for the person, but that, that character that could so easily overcome us, we need to run from it. We need to take it seriously, because if we don't take it seriously, we will be seduced by it. So why would we have mercy and fear when it comes to those who are living in their ungodly passions? Well, he gives us the reason in verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. So he's walked us through. We have been called. We have been commissioned. There is an adversary that wants to divide us, wants to see us fail, because in the chaos, they will thrive. And to these people, we need to show mercy with fear. We need to have caution. And the whole reason is because God is victorious in the end. We know how it ends. We know the end of the book. God wins. God is victorious. And in the end, we will see justice. So he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So this goes back to this guard that we've seen over and over again. It is God who can guard us from stumbling. When we keep our eyes fixed on him and not on behavior, then he guards us, he matures us in his grace, he matures us in his mercy, and he allows us to walk the way He has called us to walk. He's going to keep us from stumbling and to present you blameless. In the midst of this battle, some of us will fail. Some of us will fall. And some of us, because we have failed and because we have fallen, we will feel shame. And what He's saying here is you don't have to feel shame. Some of us don't want to don't want to be confronted by God because we're like, God, we have fallen over. We have failed. We have fallen. And now we are steeped in shame. And what he's saying here is, he is going to present you blameless. If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, even if you didn't have the right framework and your guest house fell over, he's still going to present you blameless. He is what causes you to stand. Even in the midst of your failure, He causes you to stand. He is the one who paid the price. He is the one that grows you in His grace. You have your part to build yourself up, but He has His part. And that is to present you holy and blameless before a holy God. And He does it all with joy. It is His joy to present you holy and blameless. And not only is it His joy, but it is His 
glory. We cannot add to God's glory. We cannot subtract to God's glory. But he uses us to glorify himself. It is to his glory when he takes wretched sinners like you and me and he begins to change them and he begins to grow them in his grace and his mercy. You have been called. You have been commissioned. The false teacher has offered you empty promises. But God has promised that he will make you stand blameless and holy before him. Who will you believe? The false teacher or God? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't have to earn it. We don't deserve it. And yet you pour it out on us. Your grace, your mercy. And it is through your grace and your mercy that we can grow into the creation you have called us to be. And Lord, we pray that as we see people being led astray by false teachers, we would know how to interact. We would be able to discern where they are at, whether they are just doubting or whether they are beginning to act or whether they have fallen hard. We pray that you would help us to discern it and to act accordingly so that you may be glorified. In your name we pray, amen.